Today, we're gonna talk to an expert on product inspections, and we're gonna find out how having your product inspected could save you thousands of dollars on your Amazon journey. How cool is that? Pretty cool, I think. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Serious Sellers Podcast by Helium 10. I am your host, Bradley Sutton, and this is the show that's a completely BS-free, unscripted, and unrehearsed organic conversation about serious strategies for serious sellers of any level in the e-commerce world. And we've got somebody on the line today coming from Chicago, I believe. Sajog, how's it going? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing just delightful. Now, you were uh, suggested, you know, for the podcast by Barkus, who who works here at this company. Uh, I'm not sure if he he's used your your services before, but but he's heard uh, of some who have. And I know your your main, you know, one of your main things is is things like inspections. And we're going to get into that a, a little bit later. But as I do with all the guests, I like getting just the the backstory to show that it doesn't matter what background we come from or or what education we have, we all end up here in the same space, as it were, you know, with Amazon or with e-commerce. So. So you're in Chicago now. Is that where you were uh, born and raised? Yeah. So that's uh, that's a really awesome question. So actually, I was born and raised uh, for the first four years uh, in Mumbai, back in India. Okay. And uh, and then I came here when I was uh, four years old. My parents uh, actually lived in the U.S. Uh, for a little while before uh, I was uh, in India. So uh, we came here, and um, I, I came back, and I was living here, and I was raised in. Uh, Colorado, uh, in the Denver area, uh, in a city called uh, Fort Collins. And then I moved to Northwest Indiana, uh, Chicago suburbs. And I essentially uh, was for the most part raised there for uh, my entire childhood. And then uh, after that, uh, ended up moving to Chicago. Okay. So, so when you were in Indiana there or, or Colorado, whenever you were, you know, like 10 years old or so, uh, did you have any career aspirations at that time? Like what you wanted to be when you quote unquote grew up? Yeah, definitely. So um, when I was like 10 years old, uh, things like that, I was always into entrepreneurship and uh, kind of some weird angles. So uh, when I was uh, going through grade school, I was actually, um, I was programming my own websites, programming my own servers. I actually opened up uh, my first like business business kind of thing was uh, Minecraft. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Minecraft, but it's like a sandbox game for kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started off with that actually, and when I was in sixth grade, I opened up my first Minecraft server, and that really took huh. off. And uh, that's actually how I made uh, my first, like, I would say, decent amount of money was actually in Minecraft. And uh, when you were in the sixth grade, yeah, I was in the sixth grade, and then I ran that till I was in about eighth grade. Okay, so so you're a sixth grader. How much money were you making off of that? Uh, not a ton, like uh, in, in relative standards. Hey, but- when I was in sixth grade, if I made ten bucks, that that that, that was good for me. But I'm assuming it was a little bit more than ten dollars. Yeah, so I made like I think altogether a few grand on that server. Uh, but you know, we also had server running costs and things like that. So, and I also was a sixth grader that loved to buy tech uh, because I was always a little techie guy. So, kind of made zero out of it, you know, at the end of the day. But uh, I think I made a oh. few few grand on that. Well, cool, cool. So then, what about uh, upon graduation from high school? Did did you keep going on that that path, or, or what what was your major in college? Yeah, so my major in college was uh, in business and management uh, from Indiana University. And uh, so kind of what led me down uh, this whole path, how I kind of got here, was uh, it's actually super weird. So when I was in high school, I think it was like sophomore or junior year of high school, 
uh, I started uh, looking on eBay. And uh, that's when like eBay was like, you know, just coming up. Amazon didn't really like, you know, people were selling, but no one really knew too much about it. And um, eBay was like a huge thing. So I was uh, on eBay and uh, I was shopping out with my mom at the time and uh, we were going uh, to the mall and we were at the mall. You know, she was taking like six hours, you know, to get clothes. And I was like bored out of my mind sitting around uh, on my phone. <laughs> so uh, I went on uh, eBay and I noticed, um, you know, I, I needed a phone charger at the time. So I went on eBay and I actually so searched up phone chargers and then I was bored, you know, I had a lot of free time on my hand. So instead of sorting lowest to highest, I went highest to lowest. And I found that, okay, I could buy a hundred of these cell phone cables for like 150, 200 bucks. And then that each individual cable was selling for like five to $10. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what got me into e-commerce in the first sense. Mm. And I actually ended up buying, I, I was like begging my mom, it's like, hey, you know, can I borrow like a hundred bucks? Let me buy this uh, thing here. She And she was like, okay, fine, but you need to pay me back. Uh, I had money saved up in my bank too. So it wasn't that big of a deal. So I, I bought that $150, $200 order. And, uh, and then I was able to sell that entire order in about two weeks uh, on eBay, just flipping everything. And, what, what year uh, was this about? This was back, I think, um, it's almost like eight years ago. So okay. yeah, about eight years back, maybe 2012 around that time. Cool, cool. So so then, you know, you got your first little taste of e-commerce there. How, how did it progress? Uh, so it progressed uh, pretty quickly. So I started uh, buying and selling stuff on eBay, just a bunch of random stuff uh, on and off. And uh, it just grew super, super quickly. So uh, actually, by the time I graduated uh, high school, um, for like uh, a portion of that period uh, in my senior year, I was netting actually around six figures a year, uh, just buying and reselling stuff on eBay. Uh, okay. So that's kind of how that progressed. And then uh, towards the end of that, I ended up uh, founding after that a uh, my own brand because I uh, was going into things and I was like, wow, you know, like I'm buying and reselling all this junk on eBay and I'm pretty sure I can make a much better quality product and, you know, build a brand. And it's also, you know, a, a little bit of a longer term vision. Versus, you know, just buying and flipping things because, you know, you buy and flip things, you know, you run out of inventory, whatever, and then boom, you know, you're out of business and it's not really a reliable source of income. So I was like, okay, hey, I want to make my own brand. That brand grew super quickly. So the first year we did uh, 40K in uh, revenue. Uh, Second year we did a million. And in our third year, uh, we were on track to do about 2 million a year. And um, unfortunately, what happened is in this third year, uh, so we didn't get, we got lucky initially working with a lot of our suppliers and, you know, some of our products were electronics. Uh, some of our products were more simple. They were just accessories and Velcro, you know, little things like that. Uh, so, you know, not too complex, uh, just simple products. Uh, but we started seeing like a lot of defects with our products. So initially we got pretty lucky with our suppliers, but as we started doing more and more orders with them uh, over, you know, two years or so, uh, we started having like a consistent quality degrade. And our orders just got worse and worse and worse. We started having customer complaints. Uh, we started having uh, issues with quality, warranty claims, returns, negative reviews. And uh, with the new suppliers, uh, we didn't get as lucky uh, right off the get-go. So some of our products that we were launching were having defects right out of the gate, uh, which were pretty terrible for rankings and uh, getting those products up to Amazon. You, you were manufacturing these in uh, China? Yeah, all manufactured in China. Okay, so is that I assume that is what started your your path down? Man, this uh, quality control issue at the factory level is kind of an important thing. Exactly. So actually, back in um, it was around 2017, 
uh, I moved to China for six months. And that was like in the ending year of my brand. And uh, we we're just having a lot of quality control problems. Like, I mean, like five to 10% defect rates, dead on arrival units are units that are just broken when they get to the customer and almost 100% failure rates on some other products after a few months of use. And, you know, these were some of these products were durable products. So we were giving like a one year warranty on these products and uh, they were just breaking apart after a few months of use. So we had to replace them, refund them or something, you know. And uh, the expenses just kind of kept stacking up. So it was very clear that the batch of products was bad and, you know, the inspection was not done properly. And, uh, and then so the two days later, I had the idea, let me call the inspections company I was working with at the time. I had them come to the factory and uh, do an inspection on the products. And uh, when they were there, the inspector was supposed to show up around 8 or 9 a.m. Uh, in the morning and at latest by 10 a.m. And uh, so I went to the factory super early in the morning. I told the factory, you know, don't tell them I'm the client. And, you know, I just wanted to hang out and see what was happening with the inspection. I was waiting there for almost four to five hours before the inspector arrived. He arrived in the middle of the afternoon around 1 or 2 p.m. Uh, and keep in mind, this was a one day inspection. So five hours late into the eight hour uh, day there. And, uh, you know, and I thought, you know, the inspector was going to get there. He's going to be apologetic. You know, hey, I'm sorry. And, you know, get right to work and, you know, really dive down. Uh, but instead of doing that, the first thing he asked the factory was for lunch. He said, hey, if you don't give me lunch, I'm not going to start the inspection. So I was like, you know, I was pretty pissed. <laughs> I was waiting for this guy for five hours. And now he shows up and he's asking, you know, this uh, factory for lunch. So the inspector, uh, the factory rep, you know, came to me and he's like, you know, hey, you know, don't worry about this. This is normal. And I was like, are, are you serious? Like, you know, this is like a normal inspection operation here. And he's like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. We're going to get him lunch. You know, it's like 20 RMB. It's like, what, three bucks? You know, don't worry about it. Let's get him lunch. And, you know, you know he'll continue with the inspection after. So they went ahead and bought him lunch. And um, three, uh, you know, 20, 30 minutes later, uh, he finished his lunch and, uh, and then proceeded to do our entire inspection, which, you know, took me nine hours uh, in the course of about two to three hours, essentially just visually looking at the products, uh, just opening them up, saying, okay, hey, these look good. They're not scratched up. You know, some of these products were electronics. So we asked him, hey, you know, we need you to plug it in. We need you to run it through the Ben test machine, you know, all of these different things. What kind of batch was this? 200 and 300 out of how many? Uh, so I believe that order was about 10,000 units. So okay. this was a batch. Uh, it was actually 300 units. Uh, so that was what uh, he was supposed to inspect. And uh, so we asked him to plug in all those units on all 300, you know, products. And uh, he told us that, you know, of course, the inspection company said, yep, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. And when they came down to the inspection, uh, the inspector only really plugged in about three to five units on every single test and then gave us the past inspection. Uh, so when we got the inspection report the next day, we got a past inspection report for a batch of products that when I tested myself, we had a 6% defect rate, meaning 6% of the products did not work right off the bat. I was not even including the visual defects, uh, those scratches and things like that. We didn't really have too many issues. And then our wear and tear tests, uh, he notated that on the report. And uh, those uh, those tests happened to pass as well when he did them. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how he did them because I wasn't in the room. But altogether, when we got the inspection report, when I tested the batch myself, it was clearly a failed order. And when I got the batch results from that inspector, we got a fully passed order. Uh, so that's actually what led me down to the path of founding Mobley because shortly after, I ended up moving back to Chicago. And uh, Chicago is like a hub for brick and mortar. There are not a lot of Amazon sellers here, but you know there's a lot of brick and mortar sellers. 
So I was talking with a lot of brick and mortar sellers, going to conferences around the space and also conferences, you know, all around the, the U.S. here. Uh, so I met with a lot of Amazon sellers, a lot of brick and mortar sellers and asked them all the same question, which was, you know, pretty simply, do you trust your inspections company? And every single answer I got was, no, I don't trust my inspections company, but it's better than doing nothing to the tune of those words. And that's actually what led me down to founding Mobley and, and the reason that we do inspections the way we do. Interesting. You know, I kind of like that. It's, it's, you could see firsthand the, what happens when you don't do it. And, and, and I have a similar experience. I mean, you were already doing something that was, you know, quote unquote, the, the right way to do things is hiring third party inspections, not relying on the factory and, and, and still things were leaking through, but, uh, you know, we, we did the project X, uh, thing here on, on YouTube for helium 10 and, and I launched a lot of, you know, private label case study products on different people's accounts just to keep my knowledge fresh. And, and it was, there was a product that we launched and, and, and it was from his factory. We, we've been getting stuff from them for like a, a year. It was actually the same factory as, as, as we get some of the project X items from and never had any issues with quality. So like, I'm like, you know what? Hey, you know, Amazon's not my full-time job. I'm not doing this for profit or anything. I'm just doing this for my knowledge and trying to keep profitable products on there. You know, a company can get uh, the money for some or the per the person who's letting me use their account, they can get their money. But you know, it's not like, uh, you know, this is my livelihood. So I didn't have as much invested, I guess, uh, in it. So I was like, all right, I, I don't need to do uh, inspection. You know, we've bought thousands of products from this factory and, and never had major issues. And then got this and then like the first couple I opened, I'm like, this is terrible. Like, I mean, it was like, it was the worst quality I've ever seen in my life of, of a product. And it was just like, uh, it ended up taking uh, me and my family you know, I have a warehouse here at my house. So like we opened up like three, the, the shipment, thank goodness, was only a very small shipment. It was only like 300 units. Took us to inspect everything ourselves because we had to do a one by one, like four days, you know, to do it, you know, like three, four hours a day, three of us, four of us. And then at the end of it, we only had like maybe like 75 units that were good and everything else was bad. So, you know, I didn't have any agreement. So like it, it's kind of already, it's a hassle to to try and get credit for this. But then, you know, one thing I'm not going to get back is like the shipping, you know, fee. So, so guys, you know, out there, this is something that whether you're just small time, you know, like, like one of these small case studies they did or big time, you know, you got a $10,000 electronics products order. Uh, you guys should not uh, be, be overlooking the, the need for inspections. Now, one thing I think that comes up that a lot of people wonder about is like, Hey, you know, I'm dealing with, you know, profit margins here and, and I'm already paying for shipping, you know, there's these taxes and then. You know, now I have to do a 3PL warehouse. Uh, Amazon sellers are trying to, to you know, and rightfully so, you know, save costs whenever possible. I think everybody would agree that it's definitely worth it. You know, like if you had to lose a whole shipment because of a quality issue, well, obviously saving costs wouldn't have done you good. But at the same time, you can't do it where it's going to cut into your profits so much that now you're not even making money. So like, let's say a typical Amazon seller might have a minimum order quantity of a thousand units. And, and this is not like an electronic product. You know, obviously an electronic product takes a lot more, you know, you got to like turn it on and, and, and put it through some things, but let's just take a, a coffin shelf, for example, you know, our wooden coffin shelf, you know, somebody needs to take a look at it to make sure that they didn't have any paint running down or that there's no chips, you know, here or there. What would be a typical cost of an inspection? And then what would the process be of like a thousand unit wooden coffin shelf order for a newer Amazon seller? Yeah, it's a really loaded question. 
Uh, so yeah, to just kind of address, uh, first of all, your point you mentioned about um, kind of the way to look at costs. Uh, there's uh, we actually ran a calculation, and um, in terms of like inspections and how to run the calculation, and uh, we found out that you know let's say you have a ten dollar product and uh, you have you know one bad order, which you know it's, it could be the fifth order down the line. You know it could be that fifth order, the sixth order, it could be the second order. You know you don't really know when it happens. It could be the twentieth order. And uh, that's a really common theme. You know, it just happens to be one order, or it could be like a consistent decline. Uh, that one bad order is enough to sometimes pay when you take into account shipping costs, packaging costs. Uh, you know, lost profit if it's returned and you know sent directly to Amazon. Customers return it, uh, and uh, warranty replacements, things like that, without even including the actual cost of like reviews or brand damage, etc. That alone, just on a financial impact, is sometimes enough to pay for your inspections for that product for several years. A lot of um, you know customers have this misconception that inspectors, uh, when it comes to inspection costs, like inspectors cost maybe three to five dollars an hour in China, for example, and uh, that really can't be farther from the truth. So a really qualified, well-trained inspector, the market rate for that inspector after benefits, payroll taxes, um, you know, social security, all those other expenses are considered, is about thirteen to nineteen dollars an hour. So in a general sense, an inspector can only really do one day, uh, one inspection per day, uh, just because, you know, if they're going out to a factory, it's two hours, you know, from the city, uh, finding another, you know, factory nearby to do another inspection uh, is going to, you know, it's very unlikely. And even if it does happen, there's transport times between those factories, other things like that. So uh, it doesn't really make feasible sense for an inspector to do more than one inspection in a day. And uh, what ends up happening is that uh, when those inspectors are allocated for the whole day, uh, you know, they, they have time where they can do a, you know, a pretty proper inspection. So mm. it, it's done for, uh, you know, a whole day of labor is about maybe a hundred to $150 just on the inspector cost alone. And then there's additional costs that go into the inspection, which is the actual, you know, fraud and auditing training of the inspectors, the travel costs, uh, accommodation costs, if it's a super rural factory, things like that. Uh, and obviously also administrative costs to make sure that, you know, the inspection is booked properly, the recommendations are done. Uh, and the process is followed properly. So altogether, you know, the cost of an inspection uh, to do a good inspection is in the $300 range in that region. Okay, so now let's say that's order number one, your first one. And then, you know, hopefully, you know, optimistically thinking, this is not the only order. You're going to keep ordering this if, if it takes off on Amazon. Now, what's the difference between your very first inspection you do of your first order of product and subsequent ones? I mean, is there no difference? Do you do the same exact inspection every time? Or after the first one, you kind of can get like a, or you should go like a, on maybe a not as stringent one? That's a really good question. So in terms of like the sample size to choose for an inspection, there is some flexibility there. So what most inspection companies use and, you know, what you should be using as well, you know, if you're an Amazon seller is you should be using ISO 2859 and uh, ISO stands for International Organization of Standards. Uh, and they've essentially spent tens of millions of dollars building a statistical model on what is the least number of units to test in a production batch while still being statistically significant. Uh, so it's not related to percentages. It's not a ratio. It's a statistical model. So it's more of a table. And uh, they have three levels in that table, level one, level two, level three. Uh, so if you sell to Walmart, you sell to Target, uh, you sell to a brick and mortar, a lot of those stores will require you, hey, we need you to do a level two inspection on every single order. 
Uh, level one is meant to be a really quick and dirty inspection. It's not very statistically significant. And on the other hand, level three is the most statistically significant. So in the case of those wooden shelves, uh, you know, a thousand units, uh, level three is about 125 units and level one is about 32 units. So level three is almost four times more statistically significant, you know, more, more units than um, level one. So it makes a pretty big difference. So if you're selling on Amazon and you have a higher risk of, you know, reviews and negative damage and uh, returns, things like that with, you know, return rates in e-commerce already being four times higher than brick and mortar, uh, it's really generally recommended you want to go for a level three order or level three, uh, in, uh, level three inspection on every single order. Uh, and that's really what you want to be doing on every single order is a at least a level two, which is the brick and mortar, uh, brick and mortar normal, and ideally a level three. Uh, inspection. So that way you can make sure that, hey, my products are good every single inspection. Uh, so what a lot of sellers opt to do that we've seen, and you know, it also works really well, is when you do that first order and you're doing a pre-shipment inspection, you, you, the first orders are generally 60% of the time, I would say they're a hit or a miss. So if it's a hit, the product is great. There's no problems. Uh, everything is smooth sailing. If it's a miss, uh, then it's super, usually su something super wrong. So maybe the color is wrong or the parts don't mm -hmm. fit together or something like that. So generally to gauge against those risks, uh, you want to do in the first order a more detailed uh, pre-shipment inspection. So a lot of sellers we work with uh, say, you know, it's 125 units for a level three. Uh, they say, hey, you know, instead of doing 125 units, I want to do 150 or 200 units. I want to do something above the um, the level three level. And uh, another way of actually um, fighting that risk is actually doing it during production inspection. And those are super useful, especially on the first orders, because you can get a view of the production line and actually be able to benchmark that production line then to future orders uh, if you run into issues again. Uh, so if that first order is a hit and your fifth order is a miss, you can do it during production inspection on your sixth order and say, okay, hey, you know, the production line changed from the first order to the sixth order, and this is what happened. So you can get those insights. All right, we're gonna pause this really quick because it's time for my BTS. You can view that as behind the scenes or you can view that as, as Bradley's 30 seconds, whatever you want that to be. Basically, I'm gonna give you guys uh, my 30 second tip of the episode. And that has to do with sales estimations for items that have variations. So a variation, as you guys know on Amazon, it's like it's a Amazon listing that has different colors, you know, red, blue, green. Amazon gives the same BSR now, bestseller rank for all of them. So there's no real way using Helium 10's tools or just looking at the BSR to like know which variation or which color is selling the best. So what you guys should do if you have Helium 10's Chrome extension that you can get at helium10.com forward slash extension, you just hit the review insights on there. And then at least you can have the ability to see which variation item gets the most reviews. Now, this is not some exact science where it correlates to the number of sales, but at least you'll know which are the items or which are the variations, the child items that are getting the most reviews. And correspondingly, usually those are the ones that are getting the most sales. Okay. Now, I mean, another question that I think people might have as far as inspections goes is, yeah, this is all well and good. And, and we understand this, all right, we can make it profitable. But at the end of the day, this is a, you know, third-party company, they can come in, and what happens if if the factory is like, no, that's nonsense, you know, like, they're full of full of crap, you know, the, the, this product is good, you know, like, they're not tied in any way to the factory, and rightfully so, you know, you don't want somebody biased, you know, otherwise, otherwise might as well just have an employee of the factory do it, but, but what happens in situations like that where there's a dispute where the inspector says one thing, 
and the factory says another thing, and you're here in you know Chicago, Illinois, uh, you know ten thousand miles away, uh, trying to mediate this. Like like what happens when issues like that come up? Yeah, it's a really good question. So that's when it really gets uh, super important to get down into the results. Uh, that's where the results become like super important. So for example, like when you do an inspection, like at least with Mobley, uh, we send 40 page reports and they have tons of photos of the product, photos of the defects. Uh, there's videos of each test that the inspector did. So if you give a custom instruction, like run it through a bend test machine, exactly how they did that, what that machine looked like, how it was set up, how it was run, that's all in that video. So what it comes down to that is that the factory says, hey, you know, products are good. The inspector doesn't know what they're doing, et cetera. That's when you just want to look at the results. You want to look at the pictures. You want to look at the defects. You want to look at the videos and you want to see, okay, hey, you know, did the inspector do their job properly? Did they properly inspect the products? And, uh, you know, did they, did they run the checks properly? And 99% of the time, uh, the inspector did test the products properly and the factory is just trying to cut corners. And that's what we've seen in, in, in the most part. Uh, now there are times, you know, where you know we we had a client, for example, who who did uh, leather products, and uh, when he did an inspection for leather products, the factory said, hey, you know, we don't have any problems. Uh, but when the inspector found problems, you know, they found a lot of issues, like the leather was bent or was you know it was worn out in certain areas, things like that. And uh, the factory didn't consider those defects, uh, but the inspector did. And the reason the inspector considered considered those defects is because they have experience. Uh, you know, inspecting a lot of other leather products as well. So, you know, when you have all that experience and you've seen all these leather products from, you know, hundreds of different manufacturers, uh, you can have a different point of view than what, uh, you know, the, um, the factory might have or the client might have. So it really just comes down to looking at the inspection report and saying, okay, hey, do I consider these defects or do I not? And, and then you kind of know which side to kind of lean from. Uh, but if the factory is being, you know, super uncooperative and they're saying, hey, the products are good despite having, you know, clearly bad inspection results, uh, that could just be a red flag on the side of the factory. And, and that's when you have issues with your manufacturer. And that's when things get a little bit more complex. So what kind of language when you're first negotiating? I would imagine then the time to, to talk about these things is not, oh, product's ready to ship. Okay, here, I'm going to send in my, my inspection company. Uh, I would assume that, hey, when you're first negotiating with the supplier, you tell them something like, hey, I use a third-party inspection company and the, these are the guidelines. Or, or, or is, is that suggested to, to, to put that into the initial negotiation so that there's no miscommunication later? Yeah. And nine out of 10 times, it's really effective to do that. In the one out of 10 times, if you give them too much information, then they can kind of game the system. So a lot of times with inspections, you're not gauging uh, the quality of the products um, you know, the root quality issues, you're maybe gauging the symptoms. Like for example, if there's a lot of loose threads in the product, you're probably gauging that, Hey, this product is going to come, you know, come apart pretty easily. Uh, if it's like a, you know, let's say it's a threaded product. Uh, so if you see a lot of loose threads, you can say, okay, Hey, this product may not be good quality. Uh, but if you say to the, you know, to the factory, Hey, we're checking for loose threads. And that's, you know, a very specific thing you, you tell them, then they can cut all those loose threads. And uh, it could still be manufactured in a, in a poorly calibrated machine. Uh, but now you have no indication that, hey, this product is going to have more loose threads after a few weeks uh, because they cut it all out and they trimmed it. So in that one out of 10 times, it becomes a little bit uh, confusing. But nine out of 10 times, yeah, you do want to tell your factory in advance that, hey, you know, this is what my inspection company will be looking for. This is what we're going to do. Uh, and it's really important to have it uh, in writing and, and not so much because it's an enforceable contract. Uh, but more so because it's a um, you know it's set up in a way that uh, you know there's a 
clear written agreement between the factory and you. Uh, so that way, you know, as long as the factory wants to keep that relationship with you, then, you know, that's really enforced at the end of the day still by trust. You know, there's, it's very difficult to enforce a contract in China, you know, unless it's written in uh, English, Chinese, it's signed and chopped. And, you know, you're going through that entire process, which can be very complex. And then obviously, it's very expensive to actually get that contract enforced. Uh, so it's more so, you know, you want to keep it uh, detailed enough to where that relationship with the client, with the factory is built. So you can say, okay, hey, you know, we're going to be checking the products. This is the things we're looking for. We're looking for visual defects, uh, you know, with the, if it's a wooden shelf. Uh, we want to make sure that it's you know built up to the weight limit we discussed. So we're going to put 100 pounds on it and it, you know leave it there for 10, 20 minutes and it should not break. Uh, you know we're going to put 150 pounds on it or we're going to keep adding weight till it breaks uh, to test for that. You can kind of give them some some ideas so they know that okay, hey, you know you're going to be doing a proper inspection and you're going to be properly testing the products. Uh, so if they skimp on any of the specifications, uh, then they might have to remake the entire order. Uh, so that's when you know it becomes really helpful to kind of set those expectations early, uh, so that way everybody's on the same page. I guess another question would be, you know, uh, in regards to uh, inspections, is what happens in the case that you know that there is something wrong? What's usually the next step? Like, do you have, you know, I mean, do you ever have a case where the whole batch needs to be scrapped, and 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 who's responsible for that? Or do you usually negotiate something where there's, you know, some kind of allowance, like a certain percentage that they need to be able to replace? Or, I mean, the, the whole, I mean, the ideal situation is, hey, we inspected this and there's only like two defects. So we think this is good. All right. Everything's good to go. But, but hey, you know, devil's advocate, things don't always work out that great. What's, what's the next step when somebody gets this report and they're like, yeah, I don't want to ship this product. Yeah, that's uh, when it can get really tricky. So in terms of acceptable allowance, uh, generally what's set most factories use is the AQL system, acceptable quality limits. And that's laid out in that same specification that I mentioned earlier, ISO 2859. So essentially there's like a, a number of allowed major, minor, and critical defects. Uh, so for Movi, for example, we don't allow any critical defects. And the ratio we use for major is uh, uh, 2.5 and 4.0 for minor. Uh, so I don't have those specific numbers pulled up, but like, let's say, you know, you have 10 minor defects allowed. Minor defects are, you know, problems that, you know, small scratches on the units, things like that. Customers are probably not going to notice. They're not going to really care. Major defects are things like, okay, hey, you know, this might create a return of the product. Uh, some customers may not be too happy about it. Some customers, uh, you know, will rate us, you know, four stars or three stars for that product uh, just because of that defect. So we want them super controlled, but it's not like a terrible thing. And uh, critical defects are, okay, hey, you know, when we take this product out and we sell it to the customer, this is a definite return, definite one-star review, and uh, it's going to definitely balloon into an additional cost uh, somehow, whether it's in the return or warranty claim, et cetera. So you always want to look at it from the customer point of view in terms of what is allowed and not in the factory point of view. And, and then set that in the inspection criteria uh, or just use that as an interpretation when you're interpreting the inspection results. To determine, okay, hey, you know, this is going to be a problem. This is not going to be a problem, etc. And I always recommend coming at it from that perspective, because if you're coming at it from the factory perspective, uh, sure, you might be, you know, in a better favor with the factory, uh, but you're not going to be in a good stance with your customers, right? So if you put, you know, critical defects as major defects, and you put major defects as minor defects, uh, your customers are not going to be too happy, and that's going to increase costs for you a lot. And then you want to do what's called a reinspection, which is when you apply a tightened AQL. 
So there's like, you know, say 10 minor defects was allowed, then you can allow seven defects. Uh, and uh, so it's a lot more difficult for the inspection to pass. And then you randomly sample again to make sure the factory fixed those problems. Now, in the case that, you know, the problems are all, uh, the whole batch has to be reworked. And this has happened, you know, there, there are problems like this. Like, for example, with running my brand, we had a time when the order was produced in the wrong color and the whole batch had to be redone. You know, the raw materials were the wrong color. Everything had to be redone. And uh, we've had customers where, you know, their batch has to be completely redone as well. And uh, generally that happens on the first order. It does not happen on the second or the third order because your factory already knows, you know, here, here are the problems. So, you know, that's where the during production inspection comes in really helpful. You know, you do that at about 20% of production completion. So you catch that problem before it balloons. Uh, because, you know, if you catch that at 20% and you tell your factory, hey, you know, this is the wrong color, or these parts don't fit, your factory will halt production and they'll say, okay, let's fix this. And they would probably agree to absorb all the costs associated with the rework and fixing those products, as long as it's something that, you know, has been reasonably discussed. Uh, and they're not going to charge you for that. And it's also going to save a lot of time versus if you find it in a pre-shipment inspection and, uh, you know, the whole batch has to be reworked. Most factories are going to do one of two things. They're going to really push you hard, first of all, to say, okay, hey, you know, we just want you to buy these products. We'll fix it for the next order. So you might be in a bind where you might actually, your only option might be to walk away and lose the supplier and also lose the 30% deposit. Uh, or you can tell the supplier and kind of work with them and say, okay, you know, we really can't buy this product, uh, you know, with these problems. You know, our customers will not buy these products. We will not be able to sell them. We need you to fix these. And it's already at the factory. It's going to be way cheaper for you to fix it. And then what in most cases happens is it's a little bit of a negotiation where the factory says, okay, hey, we'll cover 20% of the cost or we'll cover 50% of the cost. You have to cover the other 50% of the rework or the new units or whatever it might be. And, uh, and then you work with them. And, and then at that point, you know, you're extending the lead time. You have an additional timeline requirement. Uh, but the factory generally will work with you somehow or the other. And they may not make money on that order. They might lose some money. But to build that relationship with you, as long as you come at them from the approach of, hey, you know, you're not the bad guy. It's a misunderstanding. Uh, you know, maybe something where we're off here, but we really can't sell these products. Then the factory is going to be a lot more amicable to work with you. And you can say, hey, we want to order more. We're launching this. It's going to sell really well. This is what our projections look like. You know, kind of entice them, give them some carrots. And uh, and once they buy down on that, you can probably get away at a lower cost than just, you know, paying for a brand new order. All right. Now, you, you've been giving us a lot of tips and strategies throughout this, but we have this part of the show we call the, or the TST 30-second tip. What is your 30-second uh, tip on something that's you know valuable, that, that people need to know about, uh, how to manage their inspections or, or something of that nature? Uh, it could be how, how to become a tycoon when you're in the sixth grade. I mean, whatever. 30 seconds, super valuable, uh, super actionable that you can give our listeners. Yeah. So in the, uh, in the lesson of uh, inspections, uh, the biggest thing I would recommend uh, if you want to do an effective inspections is don't undervalue what product tests do. So in every inspection, you want to make sure that you set up really good product tests. Like for example, in that uh, wooden board in the for the wooden shelf, you know, a breaking test to make sure when the uh, the board breaks. Uh, so I can't stress enough how important uh, the actual product tests are when it comes to the inspection. Sure, you can do a visual inspection, you can check the products, you can do things like that. But those product tests where you actually go deep dive into the product, into the quality, things like that, where you can talk with your suppliers to get, talk with other suppliers, do some research, uh, look at your reviews and you know think about tests that can combat those negative reviews. Those product tests are going to be the key piece to actually making sure your inspections are effective. 
Okay, excellent, excellent. Now, uh, if people have more questions, they want to reach out to you or perhaps see about your services as far as inspections go, how can they find you on the interwebs? Yeah, definitely. So you can always find us at Movley, M-O-V-L-E-Y.com. Excellent, excellent. Maybe, uh, you know, like I said, I, I do I do some case studies uh, here or there and I have some shipments coming up. Maybe um, I could do a little test and, and use your team to make sure I don't have the same situation as I did the last time. And then I, I could report back to everybody how the process all works, like maybe in a blog or something. How's that sound? Yeah, definitely. We'd love to do that. And uh, we can also walk you through kind of how the product tests work and things like that. And that could be really cool to include in the case study. All right, cool, cool. Sounds good. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And we'd like to talk to you in the future and, and see what, what what's new in the world of uh, inspections maybe in a year or two or so. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much, Bradley, for having me on. And I really hope anybody listening, this was super valuable. And uh, you got some good insights that you can use and uh, get started with uh, inspections.